Hey, Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. we got a really special podcast for you today. We're spread out in all different time zones. Uh, this is Ryan Abraham, your host. I'm actually in Hawaii covering the Polynesian Bowl. We have Keely Yor on the line back in L.A. And Dan Weber also back in Southern California. We're all going to talk to you about what's the latest been going on with USC football. A lot of different topics, all your questions. If you have any questions for us, podcast at uscfootball.com is the email address, or if you'd like to call or text us, the number is 424-254-9141. I am in uh, Waikiki Beach at the hotel. Hopefully the Wi-Fi holds up here. We got Keely running the show back home. What's up, Keely? How you doing? Good. I'm a little a little drenched from the California rain. I'm sure you are feeling it over there in Hawaii, Ryan, but I'm good. Yeah, I see the tweets. I'm not really <laughs> feeling the rain. And, uh, and we got Dan Weber, too. What's up, Dan? How are you? Doing good. <clears throat> Down here in the OC, and uh, it is uh, <clears throat> a little different with having uh, you know rain that uh, covers your shoes uh, with the uh, water runoff and all that. That's, uh, uh, you know, it, it reminds you of back home, but, uh, boy, we just, we just don't get to see that. And uh, when you have a couple of doggies that you take to the park <laughs> and one of them has become completely Californiaized and it does not take well the rain. I mean, just get me out of here. What the heck is that? <laughs> and, and so that's a lot of fun, actually, uh, trying to accommodate the rain and, and the doggies. Yeah, well, I feel for you guys in the rain. It's, you know sunny and 80 degrees here but that's uh you know but we're working it was actually a pretty busy uh day yesterday we got to talk to all the players and stuff and, and registration and we put up a whole bunch of content on the site you go check it out I actually got an interview with uh juju smith schuster who's an honorary captain uh here at the polynesian bowl so he was really happy i talked to him he was wish he could have played in this game when he was uh in high school but he actually played in like a precursor to this game they had a Polynesian Bowl. They played in Tustin, actually, Dan, where you're from, uh, where you live. Um, so they had that I there. Vague, this... Yeah, I vaguely remember that. I, I do remember. I, I can't even remember what they called it, but yeah, I do remember they had had one. It was like the AIGA or something, Polynesian <laughs> Bowl. They played it there, but that kind of gave the, the, the people that organized this one the idea. They started in 2017, and it's been great. I mean, it's really good. Next year, there's like 15 five stars that are going to be uh, are committed to play in this game. So it's and it's you know it's separate. Oh. You have the Under Armour game and the All American Bowl in San Antonio, you know, and then the other one, the Under Armour's in Orlando. That's all around New Year's. This one's a little bit later. So you got guys that played in those games, um, and you know I got to talk to uh, like Gino, weird one, Gino Cuyones. Uh, he uh, you know is a defensive lineman that's going to play offensive line for USC from Hawaii. He's actually enrolled at USC, so he was in class last week, but flew back for this game, flew back home, um, and so he's going to take part this week uh, playing on the defensive line, but at USC he's going to play on the, uh, on the, on the offensive line. So it's, it's kind of neat that he's already enrolled but came back to play in this. 
like Jason Rodriguez, who signed, you know, he's from the uh, Hesperia. He's out here. Um, met, uh, Mananoa Tofono, he's a local, another local kid, uh, inside linebacker in Hawaii. He's going to, he's signed with USC already. Um, and then there's one player, Puka Nakua, who's a, a four-star wide receiver out of Utah that USC, he has a commitment from. So he's one of those rare guys. There's a commitment, but he's not signed yet. Talk to him. He seemed pretty happy. He said, you know, he, he, it means something that he committed to Clay Helton. He had a really good meeting with Cliff Kingsbury, obviously that's, and he was happy about that because he said what receiver wouldn't be happy. Uh, but I think it, you know, there's, it's still going to be up in the air with him a little bit, you know, depending on how USC finishes off and how they, you know, who they hire as an offensive coordinator, but he was a bigger kid. I remember seeing him at one of the USC camps. He's a bigger kid. He's almost as tall as me and I'm, you know, close to six, three, um, and a real fun kid. So he's, he's definitely going to be one to, to watch there, but one of those two, now there's two, there used to be three, uh, committed, but unsigned commits, uh, but, uh, Jordan Wilmore, um, he's no longer committed. So he decommitted, uh, I think it was yesterday, the, the four-star running back from, from Lawndale. So, but Puka Nakua still is and Kyle Ford, who's not here. Uh, he is as well. So those are the two commitments. And then us, you know, USC will try to get those guys in and a few more, uh, come the early signing. I mean, not the early sign period, the signing day in uh, early February. Now, I know some kids um, are scheduled to announce their commitments at the Polynesian Bowl on Saturday. A USC prospect, Inuk Vimahi, uh, he has USC in his top three. He was going to announce his commitment to a school on Saturday, uh, but he's now decided to change his uh, announcement date until later. Um, What exactly is the story with that? Yeah, Inuk uh, Vimahi, I filmed him a little bit today at practice, so he's playing uh, left tackle. Most of the time, yeah, and I, I shotgun ended up talking to him, and it's just kind of like a thing where he wanted to take more time, uh, you know, discuss things with his family. So, and, you know, no problem. I mean, there's no reason, you know, you know there might be some pressure because people want you to, to commit because the game will be, it's Saturday night, and the game's going to be on CBS Sports Network. Um, so we'll, we'll have to find out what's, what's going on with him. Uh, the other one, uh, Noah Pola Gates, uh, the, the, the defensive back prospect, uh, most of the crystal balls are pointing towards uh, Nebraska. There were some rumors that he had already signed. I asked him specifically. He said no. Um, but it's, it's you know, Arizona State, USC, and uh, Nebraska for him. But he will be committing uh, during the game. As far as Jordan Wilmore, I know we, we're getting too much into questions that people have already asked. But I know people kind of hit the, the siren alarm when you have a guy like Jordan Wil- Wilmore decommit. But it sounded like if you read the war and whatnot, it seemed like Mike Jinks wasn't so high on Wilmore, right? Yeah, that's the that's what we're kind of piecing together. And it looks like, you know, what we had heard, I know there's been some reports out there like Mike Jinks was definitely going. I think that's just people making assumptions. We had never heard that. Um, not that he still might not go somewhere, but it doesn't look like he's going to be joining Cliff Kingsbury. And I, I you know, from our sources, we're saying that he would be sticking around. So you you get that, that there might be some sort of uh, switch, uh, you know, some sort of shift as far as uh, the recruitment goes. You know, he's, it, you know, he's a different kind of back. And if that's not the kind of back uh, Jinx is looking for. And, and I think a lot of it's going to depend on the system too, you know, and, you know, Jinx sticking around there, you, you maybe it is going to be more of a, an air raid type of system. You know, we don't know, but that's, that's kind of what you know. My reading was kind of behind the scenes on, on that one. But the, I think with the, you know, we'll see how recruiting shapes up. I, I think the most important thing, though, guys, is really just who they get 
as the offensive coordinator. We put up the hot board. You can check it out. We've we, you know made some additions to that. I know Dan, if you or Keeley too, either weather. But Dan, maybe start with you. Any any kind of thoughts on that? Where where USC is? Is it coming to a close? Is it going to take a lot longer? I, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I don't know how you can make such a commitment to the air raid in terms of Cliff Kingsbury. Turn everything over to him. Basically, he's the you know it's your offense. You run. How do you back off of that now? <clears throat> if that was the uh, the offense that perfectly fit. USC's talent, which I think it does, you know, it, it, it takes advantage of, you know, obviously the deepest talented, most talented position at wide receiver, uh, you know, a quarterback who, you know, makes quick decisions, uh, an offensive line that's not that, you know, proficient at blocking the run and uh, a running back group that probably can do a pretty good job catching the ball and can run the ball when people are having to defend the pass against you. So all of it adds up to, uh, and I said this before last year started, that USC had the perfect personnel to run the air raid. And I know people didn't like that because that's not USC. But it's this team, it's this program right now, and it's the talent base that, you know, that is Southern California or California in general. And, um, you do what you can do best and what you can beat people with. And, uh, so, uh, I, you know, I'm somebody in the air raid camp and if you got the air raid and cliff Kingsbury, you know, he didn't have to look in a book. He didn't have to say, gee, I wonder how they do it over there. I wonder, no, he, now, is there someone like that? You would think they would exhaust the possibilities of getting somebody who could do everything that Cliff Kingsbury, even if it's a younger guy who hasn't maybe had the chance to, to prove himself, that would be the way I would go. I, I can't even imagine that they would go away from that now and say, let's go back to what we were doing. Cause that's what we No, I just, I don't, I don't see that. And I, I don't see anything else that's better for them to do, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I guess you get like 35 days in and you know, they did have class. So I would think, the playbook could, you know, they could have meet with the players. You kind of started down that road. Now there's no spring football or anything yet. So it's not like you were out there practicing it, but it seems like you got started. It seems, I agree with you, Dan. It seems like that's a logical place to go. We just don't know. And it's not like, not like USC has always done the most logical thing. No. So, you know, no. if they could go some other way. I think Gerard kind of put it well, where you need someone that's you know, been like the architect of an offense that they've, you know, that they've been a part of it from the ground up. And if it's the air raid, it's like, yeah, someone that's a disciple from that Mike Leach tree or how mommy or whatever, someone that you know, has learned it and been a real big part of it. I think that's really important because you just never got the feeling, whatever USC is running the gumbo, like it might've been like some chef that was borrowing someone else's cookbook sort of thing. Like you don't really know, you don't feel like they've they've been a part of this as it's grown and and has been born. It just was sort of like some hand-me-down kind of thing where, you know, I think the air raid, there's this, this tree of people that really learned it. And I think if you get someone from that tree, you'd probably be better off. Well, you know, and I think with Cliff, he took it into to a different place uh, from where Mike Leach was. Used the, used the running backs differently. Uh, he has more ability to adjust to his personnel because he had to attack. Well, you do kind of have to uh, at Washington State as well as Texas Tech, but but could use a tight end when he when he had one and all the things. I just thought I liked his version of the air raid, you know, and 
obviously Leach does a really good job of what he does. Cliff, I just think his was more versatile and more able to handle, you know, what, uh, what kind of talent you've got on the field. And for USC, I think that would be the way to go because USC, you know, can recruit uh, players that you're not going to get at Texas Tech or, or, or Washington State. So, so finding somebody who is, the, you know, the closest to uh, the cliff and, and has that, sa- you know, same kind of, I don't have to look this up in a book. I don't have to, you know, yeah. say, well, what would so-and-so do here? Uh, and, and you got the feeling a little bit of more of that than you should have, even with, you know, Sark and Kiff, uh, that they had more a sense of, there was a little gumbo there because, for example, when you get a John David Booty and he's the ultimate shotgun quarterback, which is all he'd ever done in his life and not a real nimble-footed guy, and you put him under center, why? Because that's what USC always did. I would have liked to have seen, for example, John David Booty having his whole career as a shotgun guy. It would yeah. have been really interesting uh, to see how that works. So this is why you like somebody who really understands what he's doing and how the USC uh, personnel can be adapted to what he's doing uh, or how they can be used in what he's doing or how if he's got somebody that does something a little different, how he can adapt his system. And that's only, you know, the few people that really, really, really understand it in ways in which you can't copy. You just got to know it. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, what do you, any thoughts on Akili or anything, any buzz or anything you've been hearing either or whatever your thoughts are on this whole thing? I mean, based on what you guys describe are describing, doesn't Graham Harrell kind of fit that, that bill as far as air raid and kind of being a disciple of, of Mike Leach? Absolutely, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, yeah I like the name. the name. Yeah. Um, which is weird, you know, not, you know, we've heard some things about that being like a real possibility. I haven't heard much since, um, but that yeah. was the name. You know, I talked to some different people, not at, around USC, people that I, you know, I trust in college football that were like, you know, coming up with some different names we could, you know, think about for the hot board. And that's where that kind of came from. So you're wondering like, oh, did they read that and go, yeah, that would be a good idea. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, for me, I'm so curious about the timing because, you know, if you had Cliff come in during essentially the Christmas break, you kind of hit the ground running as far as install and whatnot. But now when you're waiting for offensive coordinator to come in, it just I'm curious. I mean, USC needs to be in the weight room right now anyway, but how much does this affect install and, and getting ready for spring camp and to have a effective spring camp? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's important. And I think we saw some of that when clay took over the first time um and they didn't really do a lot of practicing before the holiday bowl because they were trying to put their coaching staff in place so i think that's something they have to kind of balance right now is you know they want to start they usually want to start early in march do they want to delay it because hey we don't have an offensive coordinator in there yet it's going to be important Hmm. or or like dan where you were saying they're going to try to keep the same system just bring someone else in to run it uh I'm curious if they if they still plan on you know if we don't hear something soon and they still plan on starting spring football early, I think that would lend you know more credence to hey they do want to still do the air raid they're going to try installing it now and get going with it without you know having their you know whoever's the offensive coordinator be in place yet. Yeah, I, that's just, I hadn't thought about the uh, you know the timing of spring ball. That's uh, 
That's interesting. I mean, you know, UCLA goes later every year. Uh, I think they could do that. Uh, hmm. That might tell us something. Uh, we just have heard so little coming out of USC uh, lately. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, Lynn Swan is, you know, in Augusta playing golf with a women's golf team. And uh, so you're probably not going to hear much from Lynn. And uh, we just haven't seen Clay. Yeah, we don't hear much from them. Um, you know, we'll keep you up to date from whatever we we are hearing. But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the coaches are out there on the road recruiting. There were some some of the assistant coaches were here in Hawaii doing some visits before players that were playing in this game checked in uh, yesterday uh, in Waikiki. So they're, you know, they're definitely out on the road recruiting, trying to, to reel some things in. So we'll see, you know, sort of where that goes. Make sure you're checking out uscfootball.com. We'll keep updating the, uh, the hot board for the, uh, the uh, assistant coaching stuff, the uh, offensive coordinator stuff. We assume that's, you know, right now that's all they're going to replace, bring in an offensive coordinator. And he's also going to be the quarterback coach. Uh, but there's also some we wanted to get before we jump into questions. You guys are doing some some more work on the Todd McNair trial, which is like, oh, I thought that was over with, but apparently not. If you guys want to give like some kind of update on that. Well, um, you know, the, the, what is it? Seven months, seven months after we thought eight months now. OK, after we thought, you know, we we kind of had a, an inkling that there there were an issue there were. Uh, at least one issue, maybe two. And as it turns out, the lead juror who was kind of an issue during the trial because he turned out to be a lawyer, and then only later uh, do we understand that not only is he a lawyer for the a, a law firm, uh, Latham & Watkins, that is the second biggest law firm in the country, and had done work for the NCA on this case that nobody remembered, uh, and and so got seated on the jury and was the you know the the four four uh, four person I guess you call him the lead juror, uh, and it turns out there is a California uh, civil procedures uh, statute that seems to disqualify uh, a juror who is a lawyer for a law firm that had a part in the case, but you know. So then, uh, you know, McNair's attorneys have, uh, you know, made a motion to the court saying they deserve a new trial because the final decision was nine to three. If they lose one vote, change one vote, it's eight to four and it's a mistrial, even though it's for the, you know, the on the in the NCAA's favor. So they're waiting now uh, for for the judge to decide whether uh uh, Anthony Bruno should should have been allowed on the jury or not. Now Anthony makes it clear, and we actually talked to him today that uh, he tried to tell him that he didn't know if his law firm had worked on on the case, but he wanted to make sure that they understood that that was a possibility. And then later, you know, we find out that both the NCA and McNair's attorneys do discover that yes, the NCA had hired. Latham and Watkins uh, over a, a 13 months, a couple of years ago, to do an appeal. So they were in court Friday uh, talking about uh, should should they get a new trial now, or did uh, McNair's attorneys miss the opportunity to um, get the juror disqualified? And 
they're talking about not that he was actually prejudiced or that he led the jury in one direction because his law firm had represented the NCA since he didn't know about it, but just the fact that, you know, by the very fact that he was a lawyer for a law firm involved in the case, he's not allowed to be on the case. Uh, the language in the California law seems to say that almost, but it doesn't quite say automatically disqualify. So, so that's where they are now, waiting to see what does the judge say. And, and the judge probably didn't exactly get it right either, because when they talked about it at the start of the trial, he was more talking about, can this juror uh, be fair-minded, and does he know anything about the case? Where McNair's attorneys say, that doesn't matter. All that matters uh, to invoke the implied bias is the fact that he was a wor he worked for a law firm that worked on the case. So that's what they're arguing about. And Keely was, Keely was, uh, we had a conference call today. Keely, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I mean, talking to McNair's lawyers, they think they filed two motions and they think that the one that will be easier maybe to get uh, a retrial on is the whole the juror issue. And we'll find out, they think this week. Um, but talking to Anthony Bruno, juror number two this morning, he made it really clear that like he didn't, there's no grand conspiracy theory. And he like prompted multiple times to make sure that in case there was an issue, in case there was a conflict of interest, he voiced it. Um, he voiced it to the clerk the the week after uh, they they finished jury selection on a Friday, and he came back on Monday and told the the clerk, "Hey, I just want to make sure I work for this law firm, and there might be conflict." So I feel like from Bruno's standpoint of things, he did all that he could, but um, McNair's lawyers they they didn't really object to him during uh the process so it's it's kind of everyone everyone on all sides even the judge kind of messed up a little bit when it came to juror number two yeah and i thought it was interesting he said i couldn't disqualify myself yeah and when he i think when he looks back at it now he probably wishes he could have he didn't really want to be juror number two who people are looking at and saying oh, i wonder if that guy you know did, did this or did that it certainly sounds like he probably wishes he hadn't become well he definitely wishes he hadn't become kind of the central figure in the case uh, and we didn't mention the second point was <clears throat> the theory of the case for McNair's attorneys was clearly the NCAA's reports uh, included uh, statements <clears throat> about Todd McNair about for example who made the phone call the Lloyd Lake phone call late in, late at night that were not true. That 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 there was clearly uh, inclusion um, of facts that were false and were stated as facts. <clears throat> and the McNair attorneys decided this is enough to to get us to defamation. The, the NCAA published facts that they said were facts about Todd McNair that were false. So they didn't bring in or they didn't try to bring in Reggie Bush and, and Lloyd Lake and, and um, on Love and people that were talked about, whereas the NCA brought in a ton of people from the, you know, uh, from the NCA Committee on Infractions. And it looks like the jurors really wanted to see more uh, witnesses for Todd. And for example, 
it, it wasn't always easy. Uh, one of the witnesses they could have brought in was Bruce Arians, and because there was testimony about Todd had signed a contract with the Arizona Cardinals, and then uh, once the Bidwell family, the owners, uh, found out about it, same people who just hired Cliff Kingsbury, they said no, he can't work for the NCAA because of the publicity around. Oh, excuse me, he can't work for the uh, Cardinals because of the publicity around. Um, the NCA case, and yet uh, once so Bruce Arians couldn't come in and say yes, I wanted to hire Todd. He deserved the job. Uh, the NCA stuff really cost him this job uh, because he'd be testifying basically against his own owners. But now that he's the Tampa Bay Bucks coach, he immediately hires Todd. So uh, maybe you know if they have a new trial, he can come in and testify for Todd this time. But, uh, but that seems to be the, the one uh, problem that the, uh, the jury had was that they would have liked to have hear, heard more from people that were mentioned in the case, but didn't, uh, didn't get to testify. If that's a second guess against Todd's attorneys, that's probably it. Hey guys, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but just from an outsider's okay. perspective, you guys were at the trial the whole time. Uh, and Anthony Bruno like reached out to me through other people, reached out to our friend Lizelle, who covers USC as well. It seemed like he, he was out there right after the trial, reaching out to everyone. And from reading what you guys had said and what he had said, it seemed like he was a huge influence where he was out there saying, well, I, I get it. It should be this way. But with, by the rules, we just don't that we can't. We can't rule this way. So, it, you know, he's whatever is saying, like, there's not some kind of conspiracy. But, man, it almost looks like that where he seemed to be the person that was, like, directing people to the letter of the law. He was the head juror running things. And then right afterwards, it was almost like he's reaching out to all the media to try, you know, like, try to calm everyone down, like, let everyone know exactly what's going on. Maybe it was all innocent. But from an outsider point of view, it does sort of seem like there's something fishy going on here with him being, you know, part of that same uh, you know, law firm that had already represented the NCAA before? Well, I think very quickly what happened was he didn't realize there were all that media, that many media there. And he said, he talked about when they came together afterwards, it was kind of this big gaggle of attorneys, especially McNair and McNair's attorneys and the jurors. And he didn't understand that all of us who were there asking him questions that was, he said, uh, I realized later that was like a press conference. He didn't understand all the media interest. And so I think he decided I may not have answered those questions well, or I may not have gotten my points out correctly. So I'm giving credit. He did then at, at that point, try to track everybody down and talk to him and try to make it, you know, I don't think we'll ever know. Uh, unless we go and talk to all the other jurors, how things exactly went inside the uh, the jury room, but uh, but you know, and it was it's interesting. He dropped a little fact today that on the first straw vote it was seven to five uh, against McNair, but well within the uh, if it's eight to four or low or or lower, uh, there's a mistrial and McNair would have gotten a new trial. So. Uh, so it went from seven to five to nine to three, which is what it had to go to in order for there to be a decision in favor of the NCAA. So, uh, you know, people will 
And he knows that, I think. Don't you think, Keely? He knows people are always going to question that. Yeah, I think he, I think to your point, Ryan, that's why he's so uh, media friendly in that sense and reaching out to us is because I think he knows the what the optis, optics look like. The surroundings of what happened is the jury was excused. They all came out into the hallway. We all came out. And then it became this like impromptu, emotional press conference type thing. And that's where he kind of stated his opinion. Um, but I, I, I think as a lawyer, he is very uh, opinionated and has a strong opinion and comes across as such. I don't know how much that steered the jury, given that everyone is going to look to him as a lawyer and knowing how these things go. So I think whether or not he believes he had an influence, I think he did have an influence in the sense that people looked for him to be the leader, to be the lead juror, and, and kind of uh, facilitate the deliberations. Well, he was two things. He was a, a lawyer. He was also a former college football player. I mean, it clearly was the most in touch with college football in that room. So I don't think he could have helped, you know, but, but he would like to make it clear that uh, uh, he didn't, you know, push him down, down one road or the other. But then I know <laughs> we talked to him before and he said he was the one that read every single line of the uh of the McNair Lloyd Lake phone call, for example, as they went through, you know, line by line by line. So, you know, as you would expect, if he's the only lawyer in the room, the only college football guy in the room, and the lead uh juror, he's gonna have an effect. And I don't think he you can get away from that. But he's certainly uh gone out of his way to you know, as we'll as I'm working on now to, you know, what he told us as to how, how things went. So, uh, so it'll never be, it's one of those cases that probably never going to happen again in these, these exact circumstances. It was a difficult case. Um, some of the law is not as clear as you'd like it. It was a, uh, you know, a bet by, uh, you know, by McNair's attorneys that just the very contradictions in the NCAA reports with the facts would have been enough that that was false. Uh, you know, that was defamatory what they published about McNair. And the point that, that they got to was a jury instruction that said, was it substantially true? Not in every single instance, every fact, but in general, was the picture correct? And that's where probably, let's say McNair had brought, had gotten Reggie Bush on the stand. And if Reggie Bush would have said, heck no, we didn't let Todd know what was going on. We were afraid I'd be ruled ineligible. So we kept everything secret. And if Reggie said something like, I didn't know what was going on completely. Uh, and so Todd absolutely didn't know. I'm thinking at that point, Todd wins the case. He didn't have anybody to say that for him. He basically had himself as his own witness. Uh, and, you know, he did as well as you could possibly do, but he didn't have other people saying, uh, saying that. And, and that made it hard, I think, very hard. Cool. Well, you want to, should we jump into some questions, Kaylee? Sure. Um, not to 
to beat the dead horse, but we have a, a semi-related question. Not really. Uh, Dan, class of 1963, says, if Clay Helton remains as head coach, how about bringing Norm Chow as offensive coordinator and, and QB coach and having Todd McNair as running best coach? It would be great for nostalgia and sticking <laughs> it to the NCAA. By the way, USC spends more on the compliance office as they do on than they do on strength and conditioning. Enough with compliance. <laughs> That's probably wow, a good point. That's an interesting point. That's um, a really interesting point. Real I mean, quick, I, would, I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have minded the Todd McNair part of it. And now that he's coaching, you know, in the NFL, that, that doesn't matter. I'm not sure Norm Chow, he was the right guy. Uh, those first couple of years with Pete, uh, I'm not sure uh, that is, is the case today. Yeah, I had, I ended up having lunch with him this past week. Uh, Friday, it's the, the, called the South Bay Athletic Club, and they meet every Friday during the football season. I spoke, I think I spoke to them in the spring, and it's uh, you know a bunch of guys, a lot of USC fans there actually that they meet in Redondo Beach once a week, and um, you know Mike Waldner, you know longtime columnist, is one of the guys that helps uh, run that and stuff, and and Norm Chow was there, and John Papadakis was there, so I got to talk to those guys, but I talked to Norm. And uh, I don't think he, you know, from talking to him, I don't think he's really interested in becoming the offensive coordinator, but he would certainly be open to being uh, a consultant, being someone, you know, uh, helping out the staff, similar to what Dave Campo does. And, you know, I talked to him, he said no one's contacted him uh, from USC. And I, you know, I think something like that would make sense. I didn't like, I agree with you, Dan. I don't think, you know, making him the offensive coordinator would have been the right move, but he's definitely open to, you know, being some sort of consultant. Um, and you know, he talked about, he's like, you know, you talk about the air raid. He's like, you know, Mike Leach learned a lot of stuff from what we did at BYU. So he brought up some of those points when we were talking. There's no question about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the advantages. There are a lot of advantages having a football college football program in Los Angeles. And one of them would be taking advantage of people like Norm Chow, or maybe, uh, like a, at the top of my head, uh, uh, Amon Ra, you know, St. Brown's dad, it was Mr. Universe and, and obviously a big nutrition guy and a big, uh, you know, weightlifting guy and had done a great job with his sons. And you just wonder, can you make it, take advantage of guys like that? You know, that are, there are, you know, so many of them around, uh, you know, Los Angeles that you could really, I mean, let's face it, Alabama, doesn't say no when they get a chance to get somebody in as an analyst or a consultant. Uh, I don't think it would hurt USC a bit. Have guys like that watch practice and tell you what they think. Yeah. We have a question from Greg St. Clair who says, I'm watching positions get filled and people moving around, but nothing but crickets from Heritage Hall. Why is it so silent? And is there any news on completing the staff? Yeah. I mean, why it's so silent? I mean, it's kind of been the USC way. They they don't put their stuff out there. I mean, we think they really needed to make some um, some statements or at least let their side be known when they were, you know, in the Cliff Kingsbury, uh, when the NFL was saying, oh, they're blocking him or they're this or that or they're making him resign. I don't think we know yet whether he resigned or not for sure uh, or, or was forced to or that's just somebody saying it. I, I think, you know, being a little more transparent, especially when you're trying to do the right thing, isn't a bad idea, but uh doesn't seem to be uh, where USC is going. Obviously, when you're trying to hire a coach who's somewhere else, uh, you're not going to, you know, make that 
that real public, but you'd probably like to see, for example, if I were you to see now and, and trying to keep fans a little bit excited, and obviously that's going to be hard after Cliff Kingsbury gets everybody excited and then leaves, is you'd like to be talking about, here's what we're going to do in uh, strength and conditioning. Here's what we're going to do in weightlifting. Here's how we're going to maybe, uh, you know, beef up the uh, recruiting staff. Um, we don't hear that. Uh, that would probably be a good thing, you know, to be talking about. And uh, we just, we don't hear anybody saying anything. We really don't get a chance to talk to anybody. And uh, that doesn't help USC, I don't think. No, I agree with you, Dan. I feel like this is a situation, we see this sometimes when teams struggle. You're talking about, you know, they're circling the wagons. They're just going to try to like, okay, we're buttoning it down. We're not talking to anybody. We're not doing anything. And and especially when you have a situation like Lynn Swan being the athletic director where we feel that he's really pretty much doing his own thing. And it's not really listening to a lot of the people around him. It's keeping it a very tight circle. And they're just, it's like, they're trying to protect themselves. Like they, they know every time they go out there, they look bad. So they don't want to like expose themselves ever. And it's just not, I mean, certainly that's not helping. It's, it's really bad PR. Um, so I think that's why you're not hearing a lot. You know, we get, you know, we, we hear what we hear from our sources and stuff, but USC itself could be trying to put some positive spins on things. And they're just not, they're not saying anything. To have Cliff Kingsbury be USC's offensive coordinator that they were touting and, and putting out on all this marketing material for people, you know, renewing season tickets and all that, never had an introductory press conference, never addressed the local media in his t- entire time at USC. So that's just just kind of one of the more baffling decisions that USC has made lately. Well, that's a good point because he was really the good news. He was yeah. the great news. And we still didn't get to talk to him or hear from him. So, you know, uh, I mean, and it, it, Here's one way that I kind of describe it because you often, as we do, you know, on the podcast, as we do, you know, in emails and everywhere else, and on obviously on the uh, peristyle, is people want to know, does USC have the answers? And my my answer to that has become, I'm not sure if you can get or you can get to the answers if you don't even know what the questions are. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> and and that's a, that seems to be a problem. We don't even know if they know what the questions are right now. There, there's just not a sense of, you know, here's what we're working on because we know we got to get this right. We don't, yeah. we don't know what that is or if it is, or is it, is it just the fact that they lost some games in the second half of the season by close scores that they shouldn't have lost? And that's all that was the problem. And only we'd have had another touchdown in every one of those games, things would be fine. We'd have gone to some, you know, minor bowl and nobody would be arguing about it. You hope that's not what they think is the answer, but we don't know. Based on what Helton's answers were to to you, Dan, in the early signing day presser, it sounds like the latter, which if you're a USC fan is probably not encouraging. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, that yes, you're exactly right. That's kind of where we went. Uh, Steve in Poway says, "Let's see. Do I understand this correctly? Lin Swan hired one of the hottest young coaches with apparently some genuine interest from NFL teams and no connections or loyalty to USC. And you structure a contract with a 150,000 buyout clause. Geez, fight on, Steve. Uh, well, I think 
No one. I, I, I can't second guess anybody for thinking he was going to get a head coach, an, an NFL head coaching offer. He didn't think he was. His agent didn't think he was. We didn't think he was. USC didn't think he was. You'd have been, that was goofy thinking to think somebody would offer him an NFL head coaching job. But never underestimate the power of the NFL to somebody in the NFL to do something stupid. And uh, there you go. I mean, the longer it went, the more jobs that were open, once they got up to eight and people were scrambling around, about midway through the Cliff Kingsbury era at USC, it was apparent there might be somebody who will offer him a head coaching job. He may go to an interview and he's going to knock it out of the park because he's really good uh, at interviewing. He's really good at knowing what he knows. And uh, you could see a team would say, you know what, we'll get him a really good defensive coordinator and we'll have this, you know, telegenic young guy that'll, you know, our fans are going to love him and he'll put points on the board. And we've got a young quarterback and he'll, he'll be good with the, you know, with the young quarterback. Uh, but once USC got to that point, it was too late. I mean, there's no way because you do put a, I, I, I do think they had a higher buyout if he went for a lateral move to another offensive coordinator's job. And I think they really believe Cliff. And I think Cliff believed Cliff. He would have much rather do it at USC to be an offensive coordinator than at any NFL program, any NFL team. I think that's true. I think he saw more opportunity for himself and what he wanted to do at USC. So I think they read that right. Uh, I just think you can't, you know, underestimate that somebody in the NFL is going to do something dumb. And that's what happened. Yeah. Hey, real quick. um, Just, uh, I saw USC while we were talking, USC tweeted uh, about Mike Jenks. So they did one of those meet Mike Jenks videos. I didn't watch it because we're recording right now, but um, you know, it looks like he said, I'm extremely excited to come in and help clo- uh, Coach Helton and the USC family get back to where we want to be. So the fact that they put that out there would, you know, lend you to believe that he's definitely sticking around. So uh, that's what we've been kind of saying from the beginning. But they just they just tweeted that out there while we've been talking. I would counter, though, that counter. USC did yeah. tweet out a video of Cliff doing the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. right. I would still be cautious either way. Yeah, it's not like impossible. Because because here's the thing. What if he gets an offer tomorrow from Cliff? Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying that that's specific. I don't know that, that that's a possibility. It's just, you know, I mean, he's been here a week, I think, officially moved in. Um, Yeah. What I would say that he's not plan A, like – you you assume he would go because he's the coach that Cliff Kingsbury brought in. Um, I wouldn't say it was plan A that he would go with Kingsbury. So, I mean, he certainly could uh, go somewhere, but at least right now the plan is for him to stay uh, on his end and USC's end is, is my guess. Yeah. I mean, some guys would rather not coach in the NFL. Some guys, I mean, he was a you know great high school coach in Texas and became a college coach. I guess there, you know, some people who would just say, no, I, I really like coaching in college. Uh, so that could certainly be a factor. Yeah. 
We have a question, um, a first-time question from Greg down on South Fig. He says, hey, guys, I've been listening forever, and this is my first time to weigh in. I'll keep this short per Ryan. This is a golden opportunity for Lynn Swan to renege on keeping Helton any longer and bring in a new head coaching head coach and staff. The time is here. Well, I think they had to ask themselves midway through the Kingsbury era, what happens if he gets a head coaching job offer at uh, Arizona or the Jets or whatever? And you would think at that point they would say, we have only one play. Uh, if we want to keep him, we have to offer him the head coaching job. And the fact that an NFL team offered him, um, that would be, uh, we'd have some cover. Uh, but then, you know, you'd have to be, it might get out. I mean, you might say, you know, don't tell anybody uh, if you don't take it. But uh, if that gets out, then you're committed, uh, you know, to go that direction and and, and away from clay. So uh, it didn't look like they were ready to do that. Um, you know, is that still a possibility? Boy, you know, I guess anything could happen. Uh, but you would have thought if that's the direction they were going to go, they might have done it in order to keep Kingsbury here as opposed to do it now. Uh, but uh, who knows? I mean, really, it's hard to, it's very hard to figure out how does USC figure these things out. I mean, to be honest, from all of our reporting and all of our sources, uh, except for the fact of, of the people on the coaching staff, it looked like Clay was gone. And then he wasn't. And then yeah. then said, No, I'm keeping him. So I don't know that and I don't know that right now Lynn is reporting to anyone exactly. So, you know, here's a guy who really hasn't ever done this before and you know, reportedly doesn't really seek many people's uh, you know, input and then is kind of in a situation with no president at USC kind of reports to himself. Um, so how do you, how do you figure out where he is? I don't think we know. We have a question from Eric in duck country. He says, is the lack of underclassmen declaring for the draft, a sign of the player support for this coaching staff, or is it an indictment on this coaching staff's inability to develop players? Thanks as always, Eric. Uh, if that's a multi multiple choice question, the answer is B. <laughs> so when he's talking about the like no, so today's the day. Today's the right. um, the deadline for people to declare, uh, you know, underclassmen to declare for the NFL draft. And I I know John Wilner tweeted something like he, he couldn't remember the last time. He said maybe in the last decade it hasn't happened where USC didn't have anyone declare. I can't really remember. The last time either. that's happened, like where mm -hmm. nobody and sometimes it's usually the other way. It's usually some guys declare that probably shouldn't. But there's usually at least a couple that should. Uh, this year, I think it makes sense that nobody, you know, there's a couple guys that could have. I think it makes sense that right. they didn't. But I can't remember the last time that's happened. Absolutely. Can't remember. No. Nope. Uh, uh, I, that's a classic example of. The good news and the bad news, you know, the good news, you're not losing anybody. The bad news, you don't have anybody good enough to declare. I mean, you know, you got both sides of that coin that, that probably aren't on a great, you know, 
don't say a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of great things about, you know, the way this last year went, but, uh, yeah. We have a text from Leland in Fresno via Newport beach. He says, seems to me that the players transferring as has been the case many times before end up at lesser programs and mostly not having a ton of success. It's the amount of transfers that have been happening. That is worrisome. Your thoughts. Exactly. I mean, I think it's the numbers, <laughs> not, yeah. And not, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, and the the number of people that USC is losing for all sorts of reasons. I mean, this year was, uh, you know, just a wipeout, you know, for every possible reason under the sun. Uh, we, now that we know that, you know, Levi Jones is, is going to end up at North Carolina state USC could, I guess in the near future have two first team, uh, all ACC players at North Carolina state, for example, or who knows, uh, you know, what's going to happen with, uh, Throw the Miami guys. They could have three. USC could have three um, all ACC players uh, the first year. All three of them are eligible. Uh, so, yeah, this is you, you don't want to be populating other programs. I don't think uh, it's just it's kind of amazing how uh, how you know the bottom fell out in terms of of all the you know the talent that's walked out of here. It, it's hard to be, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's, it's hard to really move up from USC. It's like if you're, <coughs> excuse me, um, a lot of times it can be like a parallel sort of move, but sometimes it's from a, a lower division up to a higher division or whatever it is. And, you know, like a Bubba Bolden, he's going to Miami. That's pretty good. So it's, it just, I think it just depends, but USC is pretty much near the top. So it's hard to really go any place, but someplace low, you know, like a lower place than USC. Sure. Yep. Uh, so we have a, a email submission from Jolly in quotes, Roger, USC class of 1990. I'm going to paraphrase because it's not uh, radio friendly or podcast friendly, if you will. Uh, he's just very upset at Clay and Lynn Swan and the whole program as a whole. Uh, but he wants to know how many more student athletes are going to transfer out. And he thinks it's a, a, a sign of where the the state of the program is right now well you would hope almost i mean you would hope it's the the transfers have that's enough i mean uh, this is not a time when you're going to see i don't think more transfers uh much into the second semester i think it's kind of settled down at this point uh what happens after spring uh i don't think we know but uh you would think by now uh, everybody that's here will go through spring and then, uh, and then see, you know, where that leaves them. Uh, and there may be, you know, some guys that, you know, get their degrees. And at that point, um, um, you know, all Wally, for example, he's already said what he, he's going to transfer out. Uh, but, uh, he needs to get, you know, through the spring, get, get his degree so he can grad transfer out. So, and I don't know if there are any others in that situation where they're close enough that maybe they can, they can get the, you know, the credits and the courses and, and, and transfer out of the grad, grad transfer. That's what you might want to want to work on because those kids don't have to sit out. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I'd look at that and then obviously, you know, talk to people when we, uh, we get back to spring and that and, and see if there's anybody else uh, like that. Yeah, I think this is the strange part is when uh, we get it. Like, there's a lot of people, most USC fans, really upset 
with Clay Helton, really upset with the way things are going. But then when they take it to the next level, like half the team isn't transferring out. Like that's not happening. There's going to be, there'll be some, uh, you know, the recruiting class won't be as good as the other ones, but it's not the worst class in the world. I mean, it's still going to be probably the second best class in the Pac-12. So it's like there's, there's some of the fans that want to take it to like this extreme level. And it's like, yes, it's bad for sure. But it's not like, oh, we're, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll post the message board. Oh, we're going to start the season 0-6. Like, no, USC is not going to start the season 0-6. <laughs> it might be bad, but it's not that bad. You're just trying to make it more dramatic or whatever, where it's just that's almost impossible for a program for something like that to happen at USC. Yeah, and, and I know you talk about the apocalyptic, you know, pro, you know, uh, prophecies almost. And it's like, that's the t- USC's got the toughest schedule ever in the history of football to start next year. No, it doesn't. Come on. Be serious. But there are people who, you know, just, I guess, you know, we're, we're partially responsible with, you know, anybody that's got a, um, you know, a, you know, parasol where people are going to post, they want you to pay attention to them. So it has to be apocalyptic or it's not worth talking about, but, uh, it's probably not apocalyptic, but it's uh, it's not you know not a good trend. Obviously, I mean you just look at uh, you know if you took all the guys that have left in the last year, you have a pretty good recruiting class, to say the least. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I Some mean, big have names a, have left a for sure. Really good recruiting class if you took all the all the guys that that left early in the last year for all the different reasons. So we have one final text. Uh, it's from Marcel in the Inland Empire. He says, do you think our state leaders like Kevin DeLeon, who want to limit the involvement of kids in tackle football, has an impact on the way we are re- represented when it comes to college football? The West Coast appears soft. Huh. You know what I think has a big impact is the fact that the West Coast has become so good at seven-on-seven football. The best quarterbacks, uh, you know, the best quarterback coaches, the most of them, uh, they spend the most time, you know, playing a version of football that's not exactly football. And uh, <clears throat> I think that has an influence on uh, on West Coast football. I don't think there's any question about it. They don't play that much of the same kind of seven-on-seven, seven, you know, in the South. The high school coaches are still – basically in charge of these kids in the South. That's not always the case in California um, and, and on the West Coast in general. So uh, so I think that's a factor, to be honest. I, I really do, that, that California is kind of going in a different direction a little bit, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the physicality and the toughness. And the, I mean, USC, honestly, I can tell you, you know, as a kid back in the Midwest, USC to me was uh, – with a big, the big, the thing that made USC so different with a big athletic offensive lineman, one after another, after another, after another, the kind of players you didn't see playing in either the big 10 or the SEC. You don't see that quite this, as much anymore. You don't see those kids. I don't know exactly where they are, but, uh, but you don't see them at USC. I, I made the, the statement after the Notre Dame game that, uh, Waiting outside with his, I don't know, with his son or his grand, I guess his grandson, uh, 
uh, I'm not even 100% sure of that. Ron Yeri, great USC uh, lineman who's now in his 70s. And he was, <laughs> as the USC players came out, I looked at Ron Yeri and I looked at the USC players and I thought, this guy in his 70s is more intimidating looking <laughs> than those guys that are walking out the, the USC locker room door. And I just don't see those guys at USC as much anymore. And I don't know where they are. I don't know that, I mean, you know, there, there are some of them in the Pac-12. I noticed, I think, the first five or six or seven highest rated offensive linemen uh, by the, you know, uh, pro football focus, not one of them was a USC lineman. Uh, so it's a combination of things, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I, another thing, it's like, I think there's going to be some restrictions, but we're seeing like, just being at a game like this, we go, you know, we go to all these high school games. I mean, there's still a ton of great football played in California. You got some of the top teams in the country, you know, modern day, and, and, you know, it's still, it's not like it's going away in a year or two. Maybe it's being eroded a little. I think, you know, we're seeing less, you know, some junior colleges are shutting down their uh, college, their football programs. I think that could have some sort of impacts too, but I don't think that's anything that's directly, you know, it's, it's like, well, that's why the PAC 12 is down or anything. I think you're seeing that across the country. Um, it's just, there's definitely different kind of athletes. I think defensive linemen, big athletic defensive linemen are way easier to find in the South than what you're seeing on the West coast. But I, I think you're also using, there's more of an influx of Polynesian players and we're seeing that throughout the country. And, and there's a lot of, you know, athleticism and quickness and size and strength uh, with Polynesian players. We're seeing a ton of those here in Hawaii now. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, it the landscape has changed a little bit, but I wouldn't say that's the reason why. If you look at USC and go, they're soft. I'm not saying it's because some laws that changed in California are making it harder on tackle football and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's an attitude. Uh, and it's also uh, the things that the Pac-12 had an advantage in are not such an advantage anymore. You know, Nick Saban would look at, you know, the West Coast and say, you know what, I better learn how to deal with that. And he would hire, a, you know, Lane Kiffin or Steve Sarkeesian. And then they started recruiting out here. And obviously he picks up Tua and Najee Harris. And, uh, you know, the SEC has you know, the money and the people uh, and the resources to come do that. I mean, I thought John Willer men mentioned that the, by far the number one prospect in next year's class is a uh, six, seven, 280 pound defensive uh, lineman from Seattle, uh, a Polynesian kid who is an overwhelming choice to go to Alabama. Well, I'm sorry, that probably shouldn't happen and it probably didn't happen a few years ago, and now it's happening. And uh, you know, the, the and the fact that you know they're so so successful in the Southeastern Conference, the fans are so you know great. They've got so much more money uh, to spend on staff and all the other things that they do. Uh, that you know, I think it's starting to catch up with the Pac-12. The you know the less money that they have uh, you know available. You know, and the fact that the PAC or the SEC can can uh, tailor their schedule perfectly, you know, with eight home games and four games against directional opponents that are buys almost, um, so that you know, because the, they're still going to fill their stadium, 
you did that at USC, you'd have 40,000 people show up if they played, you know, the Citadel. Uh, so, you know, there are some you know, advantages that, that Pac-12 has got to figure out. USC has got to figure out exactly how do we compete against, you know, in this new environment where we didn't have to, you didn't have to, re, you know, USC might have to have recruited against Notre Dame, but they didn't have to recruit head, you know, head to head against uh, uh, Alabama and Ohio State. And now they, and Texas, now they do. Yeah. It's a different world. And I think part of it too, I talked to some of the recruiting guys about this. In the late 90s, if you remember, Miami, Florida State, those teams were like dominating. They're always in the top five. And they picked and choose best players in California. And it was cool if you were a California player to leave. Pete Carroll changed that. He made it cool, not just for USC, but for the entire West Coast to stay on the West Coast. With USC being down, and and there's a lot more picking and choosing going on from you know from the, the SEC schools and and you know midwestern schools and things like that. It's not as cool. Um, you don't have that kind of crown jewel program. You know, Oregon's doing what they can. You know, Washington, but with USC being down like that, it's not the same way it was. Pete Carroll changed the narrative, not just for USC, but I think the entire West Coast. Uh, and now that's not really the case. Well, and it goes in cycles. For example, uh, you know, you had. Miami, Florida, and Florida State. And they were all winning national championships. And people started going in there and picking people off. And if you ended up, you know, not hiring the right guy when Bobby Bowden leaves or when, you know, uh, Spurrier leaves or Urban Meyer leaves or whatever, and your program started falling off, I mean, uh, you know, you couldn't be any stronger than, you know, Miami, Miami, uh, Florida, and Florida State were for a while. And then they kind of, you know, dropped off the, the map. And that doesn't mean that Florida high school football isn't, you know, producing, you know, as many players, but people are going in there and, you know, stealing those, you know, stealing those guys and recruiting. And, uh, and you gotta, you know, you can't take a, you know, a year or two or, or a coach off. You, you gotta keep, you know, doing it all the time. Or, you know, if you're in Florida and, you know, your program is struggling, Alabama will go in there and get a guy or two that they wouldn't have ever gotten before. Uh, it's a, a much more competitive landscape. Yeah. Cool. I guess there's, that's it, Keely. Still, yeah. Well, I mean, there are still a lot of players in California. It's just there are a lot more people recruiting them now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Well, I guess that's going to wrap it up. Do we, nothing else, Keely? That's it. I got through all the questions. Great job, Keely. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And thanks for stepping in and doing the uh, editing and recording and everything because it's, it's really hard to do that uh, from here in Hawaii. But I think it sounded all right. Hopefully it sounded okay. So, you know, we'll be back our regular studio because, and everything uh, next you get, week. You get sand in your recording uh, machine, right? Yeah. Well, I didn't want to bring it's out like a that on Waikiki. <laughs> It is. Uh, I can, you know, we're going to, my wife and I, Jana, is going to, we're going to get some pokey right now, I think. Go get a little lunch. Um, yeah, our time, the time's all weird because we're waking up different send times. Send us a photo of that. Send us a photo of that because uh, somebody else who's out there is sending photos of his uh, his uh, food. So, okay. So the, you can do that. I, I, will, <laughs> I will do that for you, Dan. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, you guys try to stay dry in the rain out there, and I'll, I'll do what I can here in Hawaii for the remainder of the trip. Uh, but everyone else, thank you to Keely. Thank you to Dan. Thanks for listening to the Peristyle Podcast, and we will talk to you next time.